Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning, everyone. My name's Douglas. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I am part of the teaching team here at New Spring, and it's always a privilege to be able to come and share the Word of the Lord with you. And uh, I certainly hope that whatever you're going through in life, that you are finding your hope and your foundation, your peace in Christ Jesus is, and his uh, blessed presence among us. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. We're continuing on in, in, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. You would have heard from Matt Fricker last week talking about the healing of the leper. And if you haven't heard that yet or you weren't able to come, I would encourage you to go hear it. Um, Matt, as always, has a wonderful way of communicating the truths of the gospel and then challenging you about the ways in which we ought to live and the implications it has for our lives. I am looking at the next healing and uh, one of the things that Matthew brought to bear was the fact that Matthew has a way of writing and a structure that's unfolding and part of that is this series of miracles that take place and they're set out in in groups of three with a, a tenth at the end but there's a reason why he's doing this and um, so in the first three we see the healing of the leper, the healing of a centurion's servant, the healing of Simon Peter's mum and then it has a summary statement about how many brought people toward Jesus um, to be healed but he finishes with a very common refrain that Matthew uses, this was so that what might be, uh, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah he took away our infirmities and healed all our diseases. Jesus is demonstrating his authority as the Messiah, the Son of God, by doing things that the world had never seen. People were astounded at his authority through his teaching, which was summarised in verses uh, chapter 7, just as we entered this. But then this subject of authority seems to come up again and again and again. His authority to teach, not as one of the scribes, but as the one who possessed the very authority to interpret the law of Moses. His authority over the storms, over nature. His authority over any sickness or disease that was presented before him. His authority over the spirit realm and the demonic activity on this earth. And so this morning I want to talk to you about authority. Now there's a few ways you could go with this story of the centurion. There's some pretty big themes that are emerging from this few, what is it, ten verses. You have this theme of the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus talks about many from east and west coming and reclining with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the daunting and terrifying warning to those supposed sons of the kingdom that would be thrown into utter darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth because they reject the very Messiah they supposedly would know or should have known through the law and the prophets. That's a massive theme in itself. There's also the theme of healing. And instantly I imagine the question of, you know, is, is healing for now? Is it part of the blessedness of his presence and the kingdom of God? And, you know, you want to pick a controversial topic to speak about within the Christian church, then there's one for you. Go and ask if someone believes in healing. And in the face of all the suffering and death and sickness that goes on, 
It's a very challenging one to speak about. But for some reason, I landed on this subject of authority. And it may not surprise you that there are many authorities in operation in this world. In fact, there are authorities in operation in you before you became a Christian. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that we were under the authority of the prince of the power of the air, objects of children of wrath of God. But it wasn't until through his riches and mercy in Christ Jesus that he raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And we are now not just under God's authority, we get to sit in the same place as Christ Jesus himself, who is exalted above every principality, power, authority, rule, and bears the name above every name. I could probably go straight back to Ephesians and just preach on that this morning. But we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And so what I want to help to do this morning, if there's anything that I hope you walk away with, it's this journey of what it means to transit out of all the other authorities that have been speaking and having power and dominion over your life and come under the authority of Jesus Christ and Him alone. So some of what I say to you this morning will hopefully give you understanding in the mind. But I pray to God that He would, by the power of His Holy Spirit, Speak to your heart that you may come to bow before the one in every aspect of your life that holds all rule, power, authority and dominion and that is our only hope for salvation on this earth. So I'm going to read out the text, but before we do, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do come before you in Jesus' name recognising you as the only authority over all things. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour, every waking moment. And I want to thank you that you have blessed us with the presence of your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. I ask, Lord, that you would demonstrate your power here this morning by the way you awaken the hearts of your people and that they would look beyond uh, this person on the stage and they have an ear to hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say for them. So I give you the stage, Lord. And I welcome you, Holy Spirit, to do what you need to do this morning. In Jesus' name. The Gospel of Matthew, verses 5 to 13. You're not going to find it on the screen this morning, but that's good. Sit back, relax, open your ears, and listen. When he, came, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you. 
Many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thanks be to the word of the Lord. As I said earlier, this has many dimensions and, and avenues you could take, uh, take in examining this piece of scripture. But the thing that really struck me and I have been meditating on and considering for some time actually is this idea that Jesus marvels. Now you will see in scripture many times that people marvel at Jesus. The disciples marveled at Jesus when he calmed the storm. I mean, that was a pretty amazing thing to do at the command of his word. People marveled at his teaching. People marveled at the healing of the paralytic. So it's not unusual that we would see people marveling at the things that Jesus did and taught. But you never hear really of Jesus being marveled by the things that happened except in two places. This is the first one. I don't know if it's first chronologically, but um, this is one of those examples where Jesus marvels. And it's some of the things that the centurion says that causes him to marvel. I wonder if anyone knows where the other place is. Does anyone else know where Jesus marveled? Someone does. <laughs> he goes to his hometown in Nazareth, is that right? Yeah. He preaches there and people take offence because they look at him and say, hang on a sec, this is the carpenter's son. Uh, this is the son of Mary. And so then Jesus says, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and among his relatives and in their own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marvelled because of their unbelief. Remarkable. Let me just suggest to you as an aside that if you're going to get Jesus to marvel at you, you'd be better off in the camp of the centurion than the camp of the Nazarenes. He marvels at the centurion. Now, why is that? I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. He hears the words of his servant. Uh, he hears the words of this centurion. It causes him to marvel. Now, it wasn't the fact that he came to him and asked him to heal his servant. It wasn't the fact that this centurion, a Gentile, called him Lord. It wasn't even the fact in such reverence and humility, he says, Lord, you're not worthy to come under my roof. But he says this, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. And preceding that, he says, Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. This is why Jesus responds, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. It's a remarkable display of faith. And it's also a surprising statement that Jesus has not been able to find anyone in all of Israel with that kind of faith. I mean, is that shocking to you? You're talking about the people who possessed the law and the prophets. 
who have the heritage of the exodus from Egypt, who are supposed to know who the Messiah is and what he will do when he comes. And yet, for some reason, you have to ask, why is it that the non-Jew, the Gentile, the Roman soldier, the symbol of imperial authority, is the one who displays the kind of faith that one might have expected from the Israelites? It's a curious question. <clears throat> now, there's plenty of evidence in the text to give you some idea of why the Pharisees and the scribes found it so difficult to recognize the authority of Jesus. But you have to move outside the story. So let's look a little further into the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, soon after, he heals the paralytic, to which some of the scribes say to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He promptly heals the paralytic. Thank you. How good is that for service? <laughs> well, maybe it's for their benefit, so I don't sound so croaky. <laughs> Thanks very much. Matthew 9 again. Jesus casts out a demon-possessed man, heals him of his inability to speak, and the crowds marvel because nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees conclude from this that he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Matthew 12, 14, Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, which ultimately triggers the Pharisees to conspire to destroy him. Matthew 12, 22 to 32, we return to this subject of exorcisms where people are saying, is this the son of David? Is another way of saying, is this the Messiah that they were expecting? And the Pharisees on hearing this say, no, it's by, the prince, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he is exercising demons. And so Jesus responds by talking about what is the unforgivable sin. Just out of curiosity, have you ever thought what the unforgivable sin is? You could probably think of a few disastrous things that go on in the world that would qualify. But in the text that Jesus speaks about, he says, when you determine that what the Holy Spirit does is of the devil, you have committed the unforgivable sin. So, question for you. For those of you who don't believe in healing for today, do you cast everything that is miraculous as being of the false prophets, the false healers, as of the devil? It's a curious question. I don't know if any of you think that. Some do. Something to think about. Matthew 13, oh no, Matthew 12, 38. Amazingly, the scribes and the Pharisees asked Jesus, after all this is going on, we wish to see a sign from you. <laughs> That's quite remarkable, given that all he's already done. Jesus says they'll have nothing but the sign of Jonah, which is a pointing to his death and resurrection. Verse 13, 53 and onwards, Jesus is, is the story of him going to the hometown and causing offence and then then essentially throwing him out and him saying I cannot do mighty works among them because of their unbelief which is ironic because he just goes across the Sea of Galilee after this to the Decapolis which was a Greek uh, colonization under the Roman rule and when they recognize Jesus they bring everyone to him to get healed <laughs> interesting 
Matthew 15, verse 1. Jesus accused of breaking the tradition, but then he flips it around and says, why do you break the commandments for your own tradition? So you may ask the question right there. What is the authority under which the Pharisees are submitting? Finally, in 15, 29, we find Jesus after these series of miracles going back up the mountain which is an interesting sign in itself, given that's where he gave the Sermon on the Mount, where great crowds come to him. They bring the lame, the sick, the infirm, the possessed. They lay him at Jesus' feet and he heals all of them. And it finishes with them glorifying God, the God of Israel. And then very promptly afterwards, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to test him and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. I mean, that just, I just find that astounding. <laughs> like, what kind of sign are you looking for? But again, that's a, probably a rabbit hole we, we don't need to go down today. What do all these scriptures reveal? What are they telling you about what is causing the Pharisees and the scribes to stumble before this one who's clearly demonstrating such power and authority that has never been seen in all of Israel. Well, there's some pointers there. It's their tradition. It's their understanding of what they think the Messiah ought to be and do. And so I want to say to you that one of the things it reveals to us is it's very important what you put um, or what authority you give of first importance. Now, an authority can be anything or anyone that influences your behaviour or commands a certain behaviour from you, and it governs the decision-makings and your beliefs about the nature of life. So essentially, it is that which shapes your understanding of reality. It can be good, for example, the centurion, which I'll get to a little further in a moment, or it can be harmful or even misleading. And so the important question is not necessarily um, how you're doing with this progress, but to continually raise you your level of awareness to the forces that are shaping and determining the direction of your life. And these forces are found both within us and without us. And as a helpful guide, I'm going to give you five fundamental domains of authority. There are two external and three internal, and I believe you can go and look at this on the app. I did give Brett some notes. At quite late notice, forgive me. <laughs> I, I'm not great at doing that stuff. Um, but anyway, five domains are, one, the domain of thought, which includes logic and reason. There's the domain of feeling, emotion, uh, the senses, that experience. These are the two that are internal. Your emotions come from within. Your thoughts are from within. Even if they're coming from without, what you adopt in your thinking becomes internally motivating or determining. And then number three, we begin with the three external domains of authority. There's tradition. Like the Pharisees we see here and the scribes. There's culture and society and of course there's Holy Scripture. Now I'm not talking just about the Bible here because Muslims uphold the Quran as their primary and divine authority. The Hindus, the Vedas, the Jews, they uphold the Old Testament, we have the Old and the New, Holy Scripture. These are the five general domains. 
And any of these five can act as a primary authority in our lives. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that this is acting as your primary authority, does it? You can put it to the test. How are you doing with uh, lusting after another with your eyes? Jesus says that if you do that, you're committing adultery in your heart. Now, the point here is not that you get condemned by Scripture. It's that the Holy Spirit convicts you of the thing that you are giving authority to, that you might repent of it and come under the authority and dominion of the Lord Jesus himself. Why? Because all sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death, but the way to eternal life is through him. It's more than likely you will find that in different areas of your life, certain things will have dominion or authority. And as I said, the purpose of trying to understand this is to lead you into that journey of bringing everything in your life under the submission of the Lord Jesus. So what does this look like? For example, um, how, does, how did this authority play out? I remember, like years ago, when I first became a Christian, I lived with a, a mate who was uh, a Roman Catholic. Don't hold it against him. <laughs> um, and we were good friends, and uh, it got to a good Friday, and I think this was the first year as a Christian. I pull out chicken from the fridge, so, uh, freezer, so I'm going to cook chicken on a good Friday. He comes out, and he sees the chicken on the bench, and saying, what are you doing? And I said, uh, getting chicken out for dinner. And he says, it's good Friday. And I went, yes. And he says, you can't eat chicken on Friday. I said, really? I said, who says? And he says, it's in the Bible. It's like... It's Good Friday. You don't eat chicken on Friday. And it's like, really? So then in my uh, more confrontational and agitating me, <laughs> I, I've calmed down a lot since uh, the Lord has worked on me, I just said, did you know that that was a pact between the Pope at the time, don't know when, and his little mates at the fishing community to try and promote their business because they were really struggling? <laughs> And so, well, firstly, eating fish on a Friday is not in the Bible. <laughs> what was the authority operating in this person? It's tradition. But I'd also like to point out, what was the authority operating in me? It was a conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't have Google back then, so I'm not sure how I found that out. But the reality is that the Roman Catholics... Um, from what I understand historically, actually, out of reverence for the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on Good Friday, abstained from eating anything with the blood in it. So there's a noble reason, but it's not scriptural. It doesn't carry the authority of scripture. It's an authority that's birthed in tradition. But we're both in that kitchen arguing over something that is not scriptural and saying that it has authority. I'm showing my rebellious kind of like and almost pious, you know, knowledge of scripture, which was clearly lacking. Um, but he is convicted by something that he hasn't even read. He's just inherited in his upbringing. My authority, as it turns out, was fake news. So, um, yeah, I was on that. I was on that wave real early. <laughs> uh, so let's return to the Pharisees and the scribes. What is taking pride of place in their lives? It's tradition. And this is where 
your upbringing and your formative years of life can have a profound influence in the way you see and perceive all of reality and indeed what you proclaim to be truth. Think of a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee is no ordinary Jew. This is someone that has passed many stages of testing in their lives. The first of being, I think, from memory is uh, when they get to age 12, they have to have memorised. It's either the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, or the whole Tanakh. Can you imagine that? Imagine if there's a standard we set for Christians. Imagine if we had to have that standard to be even be before you to preach from the Word. Like, none of us would be here. <laughs> so then they go through. It's not just that they have to memorise their whole scriptures. They also have to memorise a, a, a larger body of text that is called the, comes under the term Talmud, which is their interpretations and commentaries on scriptures by people who have been acknowledged as authoritative rabbis interpreting the text from the past. And as a, as a disciple of a rabbi, you would also have to learn everything they've thought about the text. So you are steeped in tradition. Now they would argue that scripture holds primary authority, but tradition is a very close second. And some of you who know the way in which the Roman Catholic Church approaches faith, um, some would argue that they hold tradition in a similar way. Some would argue that they actually exalt tradition over scripture. Don't worry, the Protestants are guilty of doing the same thing, so it's okay. <laughs> so, the reality is though, tradition or something else can be your primary authority. When it's exalted over scripture, it can cause you to be blind to, and, to the reality of the authority of Christ himself. In other words, their tradition and their experience and their interpretation of scripture led them to a place where they could not see, perceive or understand or recognise the work of God among them. Your traditions, your experience, your upbringing, your interpretation, because yes, you do interpret scripture and not without bias, neither do I, by the way, can cause you to miss and be blind to the working of God that is among you. You think someone's irritating you about a behaviour you have or something that is causing you to be upset, you're getting offended? Maybe it's the Holy Spirit putting his finger on something you need to deal with. Like my mate, we're having an argument about fish on Fridays. Maybe we actually needed to go back and read scripture and submit to that. Perhaps on a more serious note, no, maybe I'll get that later. The, the Pharisees had a pre-commitment to what they thought of the Messiah was, which was birthed in very much scripture, but also the traditions and interpretations of the text. And so what happens, in other words, is the boundaries that they set and the expectations they placed on what the Messiah would look like what he would do, how he would do it, become the boundaries under which God is supposed to operate. And so now their tradition and authority has actually kicked God off the throne and their expectations and their traditions have usurped him and now God is now under their feet, under their dominion. Can you see that happening with the Pharisees as Jesus does signs and miracles and wonders? 
They can't actually see the kingdom. And yet here's a centurion who had no access to any of that, just simply putting two to two together and recognizing, as he says, that this is the Lord, which is a really incredible thing to say for a Gentile Roman uh, centurion who knows there is no Lord but Caesar. A remarkable insight. It turns out, funnily enough, that his upbringing actually aided his ability to understand the authority of Jesus. Consider what it would be like to be a Roman soldier. Inscripted from day one, there is no such thing as human rights, by the way. No rights. Your sole role as a soldier is to hear and obey. So you, in your, it wasn't just a concept or idea or something that was suggested, it was a command. So, funnily enough, you're either a soldier who obeys or very quickly you're not. And how you got kicked out would be various means uh, of extreme, I guess. But essentially, that is who you are and what you do. And so you are required as a part of the Roman army to simply without wavering, without hesitation, without question, execute the commands you are given by your ranking officers. So you do that for a while, and then if you show valour and courage, a demonstration of great discipline, leadership qualities, and that ability to execute orders at a command, you may find yourself being promoted to the position of centurion. A centurion would have command now of about 80 to 100 soldiers. It was nicely rounded out, and centurion is, a, is just a... You can see the, the relationship between 100 and century in the name itself. And here you see this, the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew what that meant for the centurion. Because he is no longer just under authority. He is now one with authority. And so he gets to experience what it is like to say, go, and his servant goes, come and he comes, do this, and he does it. And he knows what it is to see someone to execute commands without hesitation, without questioning, without asking, well, what about Joe over there? Or I'm not sure if I really feel like it. Or is this really the smartest thing for us to do? Or whatever a number of reasons that we might give today about someone who stands in authority and tells us to do something. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for questioning authority, but one of the things that's interesting about Australian culture, uh, you can actually look up, a, a, there's a professor who's done studies in organisational anthropology, which is basically seeing the way humans organise themselves, and he's done global studies that have produced these tools that give you an idea of the characteristics of a particular nation, and this is very helpful for people who are going into cross-cultural relationships and work. It turns out for example, that Australia, on one of the ratings, which called, it's called power distance. That sounds a strange thing. But essentially, it's how do you view authority? Do you accept willingly the disproportionate distribution of power and just acknowledge that that's how things work? Or do you like to think that power is on a level, that we're all equal? Most of us in Australia would expect that if we're in a job, we don't just expect to do work, we expect to be engaged, to be asked, to be, have input, to be recognised, to give our own opinions, to be heard, to have an influence of the direction and the things. We're also expected to have some form of self-reliance, to show initiative. This is particular to Australians. It's not 
particular to Russians. You can hear it in things like the commentary that is being made about the protests that are going on in Russia. And one of the things that astounds them that this is not culturally um, the normative. If it was happening in France, it's like, oh yeah, just another protest, because <laughs> that's how they live. But, but you can see that culturally, it influences us. So my question to you is, how do you view authority? How do you view it when Jesus says something, he commands, it's not a suggestion, to do things that you don't particularly like? Now I'm about to touch on something that I know is a very sensitive subject. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, forgive others. Unless you forgive others, your Heavenly Father will not forgive you. It's a command. Now unfortunately, it can be handled very poorly. Because the reality is, if someone is having to forgive someone, they've also been sinned against. And there's a lack of acknowledgement of the hurt and pain and the woundedness that has come through that. Sometimes very grievous. So we would do well to actually acknowledge and work through and pray and help that person on a path to healing. But that doesn't mean that the command does not get done away with. Now you have a choice at that point. You either choose to submit or you harden your heart and you choose to let your pain rule over your life. Now when I say submit, I'm not saying you have to do it. The Sermon on the Mount clearly says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is foundational to be, it's not, it's not just foundational as one of the foundations. It is the only way you become a Christian is that when you recognize that you do not have the power ability to do anything that Jesus commands. And when you get to that place, the Lord says, blessed are you because you have the kingdom. Blessed are you because healing is yours. Blessed are you because you become my son, my daughter. Blessed are you because you receive eternal life. Blessed are you because you come under my mercy and care and you come to understand what it is for a God of the heavens to be steadfast in his love toward you. Blessed are you because you become the beneficiary of the covenant that is made through the blood of Jesus. There is no other door. What about this centurion? Jesus marveled at the centurion because his understanding of authority, which Jesus described as a faith not seen in all of Israel, his upbringing as a soldier in the Roman army proved formative for his understanding of the world such that authority as he described was not just a concept or idea, it was fundamental to the way things worked according to his worldview. So when he sees Jesus operating authority, it's a no-brainer for him, as we might say. The centurion is aided by his formative experience of being a Roman soldier, whereas the Pharisees, who possess the law and the prophets, are severely hindered by their formative nature of their tradition. So I guess the question for you today is how have you been formed? What's shaping your life? And where is it in your life that you might be discovering right now even that there is an authority other than Jesus operating over you. Maybe it's thoughts, lies that you've believed. I'm not worthy. 
I'm not good enough. I must be responsible for everything. I am helpless. I am hopeless. For some people, these words are not merely words. They are authoritative because they are determining the way you live, the way you see yourself, and they do not align with the word of God. Jesus says, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. That he blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, that we might be holy and blameless before him, adopted as sons. Son is a relational term, not a gender term, okay? So it's good to go and study what it means to be the son of God. We may not be worthy in the sense of there's nothing we can do to put on the table to receive salvation, but that doesn't mean that you are worth less. You cannot look at the cross and realise and see the sacrifice that was made to redeem your life and say you are worthless. But if you cannot receive that, there is something in you that is telling you something else that is not aligning with the word of God. And maybe that thing is a significant thing, but are you willing to repent before God, declare the fact that you cannot deal with this on of your own and ask him to deliver you from the lies and the deceit that are controlling your life? I'm just thinking uh, a couple of directions to go. You know, we. Uh, I've got a number of things written here. I'm just feel like I've just stalled and just trying to find my way to where we need to go. But I can tell you that in this society right now, there are many forces, many forces of authority that are trying to take influence over your life. And there's no way that you can combat that, can combat that in an intellectual level or at a political level. But Jesus gave us the word and he gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, and if it's not witnessing to you the reality of this word, then you're going to find it impossible. One of the astounding things about the story of Nicodemus, and it's interesting actually to see the contrast with the centurion, you see Nicodemus come to Jesus and the first thing he says is rabbi, teacher. Now that may sound like a, um, a complimentary statement. But the centurion sees Jesus and he comes and says, Lord, Nicodemus, teacher, centurion, Lord. What's wrong with what Nicodemus is doing? Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He's probably one of the teachers of Israel. Sits on the council of the Sanhedrin. 
And it's as if he's coming to Jesus on a level. Jesus and I, we're the same. I recognize you. Jesus, I can see you're a teacher. The second thing he says, we know you come from God. I know I don't know if Nicodemus is being condescending here. It doesn't say anything like that. He might be being quite genuine. But he says, I know you come from God because of the signs and wonders you do. The centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Somehow the centurion can see he's unfiltered, no tradition. He knows he's an outsider, but he knows Jesus is Lord and he knows he is not worthy to have him come under his roof. Nicodemus is trying to figure out who Jesus is. He can't see the wood from the trees, so to speak. And there's the centurion saying, you say the word and it will be done. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of the Spirit, they cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what you can recite from Scripture. It doesn't matter how steeped you are in your tradition, if you've been raised in a Baptist, Reformed, whatever. Unless you are born again and the Spirit of God speaks to you and convicts you and brings about the transformation of your life, the reality is there is no authority coming from heaven operating in you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are bankrupt spiritually. You cannot even understand this except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus promised that those who receive him, he will send another helper. He will send the Holy Spirit and He will guide you into all truth. It is not enough to come to this and read it and use it as an intellectual exercise. You must seek the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and ask the Spirit to illuminate in your heart what you cannot do by your own study, effort, determination, will or whatever. You are not a child of God because of what you've done. You're a child of God because of what Christ has done. It is grace that has brought you into the kingdom of God. It is not your works. You can take pride in all the things you think about yourself, how you comport yourself in society, what you do with your work, how you love people, the works that you do for the poor. All of that, if you bring it to the cross, amounts to nothing when it comes to your salvation. The only way that brings reward in heaven is because it is submitted to God and it is out of a love for Christ that you do it, not a, out of a determination to make your place in heaven as your mark. You have nothing you can bring to the table. Nothing. And until we get that, we will not see the grace of God. So here's the pain of recognizing that you have nothing to put on the table. And here's the glory and the joy and why people can rejoice with exceedingly great joy is because in that place they realize just how generous and how amazing our Lord God in heaven is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is not just forgiveness. It's not just healing. It is the kingdom of God. It is yours. The centurion comes to Jesus and he humbles himself and says, Lord, I know I'm not worthy, but will you say the word? And what does he get? He gets the blessing of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes saying, hey, we're on a par. I'm good. I'm in the kingdom. 
Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. You will not survive the coming storms unless you have the Spirit abiding in you and this Word is coming alive for you. You need the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to invite anyone who feels like they lack, crying out, needs of an infilling. I'm not asking you to come to me. I'm asking you to demonstrate your humility before the Lord to come and ask Him to pour out His Spirit on you once again. It's got nothing to do with me. Nothing. It's got everything to do with whether you're willing in your hunger to come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. We thank you that you will come again. Lord, let us not be like those who mock the promise of your coming, saying, where is it? What are you doing? Will it ever come? But let us be sober-minded about the times that we live, recognising that you are the governor and authority over all of history. And despite the turmoil that's going on, Lord, let it not be wasted on us, but turn us to the reality of your lordship, that we might be a demonstration of your power on this earth, that we might go forth proclaiming the name of Jesus and giving hope to those who need hope, giving life to those who are dead, and demonstrating your glory through bearing witness by what you do in us, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we give you all the glory and honour in Jesus' name. Amen.